1 Corinthians 7 this morning. We'll continue in our look at these scriptures here in the, the middle part of the book of 1 Corinthians. We've been talking the last few weeks about some of the things, some of the mess that's been taking place in our culture. The Supreme Court ruled on June the 26th, a ruling that was supposed to redefine the age-old institution of marriage. We're going to talk some more about that today and some of the moral chaos that has just been swirling all around in, in recent weeks. seems like every day the headlines get crazier, and gender lines getting blurred or erased altogether. It's just messy. It's a, it's a difficult time uh, for everyone, but especially for those who profess to be followers of Jesus Christ. It's just a difficult time. And the question we've been asking is, so how then do we respond as the people of God in a time like this when moral chaos abounds, when things seem to be going from, from bad to worse? How do we wrestle with the issues at hand? How do we respond in the midst of a culture that seems to have gone mad? And I want to be real clear from the very beginning this morning. I don't think that any of those are bad questions. I just think there are some better questions that we could be asking. I don't think any of the issues that we're talking about, issues related to, to homosexuality, to transgenderism, to any of the other number uh, of anomalies in our culture right now, I don't think any of those are unimportant issues. I just believe there's a greater issue at stake in our day. And it too is an age-old issue. It's the, this is the issue. I'll be real straight up with you. The issue of the day is not whether certain folks should have the right to marry, uh, not whether f certain folks should have the right to change their gender or redefine their gender or blur their gender or whatever we're doing with all that. The issue of the day is this. Where does authority really lie? What is truth? The challenge before the church today is, I think Kevin DeYoung said it better than I ever could, so I'm just going to share this quote with you. It comes from a book I recommended to you last week. The challenge before the church is to convince ourselves, as much as anyone, that believing the Bible does not make us bigots, just as reflecting the times does not make us relevant. Church, I hope you'll just let those words sink in for a minute because I think that that is so true. As we look around and we ask folks, okay, what are the biggest issues that our nation is facing today? And you'll get a myriad of answers, but I want to I cut through all of that today and say, really, there's only one real issue at stake today, especially in terms of the church of Jesus Christ there's only one real issue on the table, and the issue is not just an issue that's out there in the culture. It's an issue that's right here in the church. It's right here in the church this morning, and the issue is, 
Are we going to continue to take the word of God as truth without any mixture of error, to believe that God has spoken and that that settles it? There's this age, uh, there's this old saying, uh, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. And church, it's time for us to cut out the middleman. The reality is, God said it, and that settles it. Whether or not you believe it, I'm not saying that's irrelevant, but whether or not you believe it does not determine the value of truth. We're living in an age where truth has been relativized to whatever you desire to believe or to do or to act upon, then that's truth for you. And if your neighbor has a different truth, then you shouldn't criticize their truth. Just live your truth. Let them live their truth. And all the truths will turn out the same in the end. And that's a whole bunch of garbage. I'm just here to tell you this morning, it's a whole bunch of garbage. There is only one truth, and it's God's truth. And our desire should be to know His truth and to live according to His truth. And even to go so far as what we're going to do today, seek to celebrate the truth of God. Not be ashamed of it. Not hide behind it as if it's some sword just to keep us safe. Or hide it behind ourselves as if it's something to be ashamed of. But to see this as the authority over our lives, over our culture, over our Supreme Court, over our president, over any other powers that be. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, church, go and make disciples. And that has not changed regardless of what all else has in recent days. So with those thoughts in mind, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 7 this morning. The Apostle Paul picks up after this long discussion of sexual immorality by talking about the context in which our God-given sexuality should be expressed. If you'd stand with me in honor of God's Word this morning, we're going to talk about God's gift of marriage in the midst of crazy chaos that we're in today. 1 Corinthians 7, beginning in verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says, Now concerning the matters about which he wrote, apparently the Corinthians had sent Paul a letter asking some questions. And he addresses for the rest of this book the questions that they had asked him about. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, he quotes them, It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. We'll come back to that. Number two, But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. 
The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. You can be seated. Father, I pray that you would take your word today and that you would apply it to our hearts. Lord, may we receive your word as truth without any mixture of error, for your word is useful for teaching us, for correcting us, for equipping us to be the people you have called us to be and to do that which you have called us to do. May we be clear in the midst of all the chaos and confusion in our culture. May the clarity of the gospel shine through this morning and in our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So here in 1 Corinthians 7, after a a lengthy discussion of sexual immorality, which, by the way, I want to say this once again, what we're experiencing in, in our culture today is nothing new. We act as though the things that are happening around us are something so dramatically new that the history of the world has never seen days like these. And I just want to say to us again, we are so wrong about that. You go back to the days of Noah in the book of Genesis, and there was rampant immorality, much like today. You go back to the days of the judges, days of Samson when he was walking the earth, and there was rampant immorality. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Everybody judged truth and righteousness for himself. Whatever's truth for you is, doesn't have to be truth for your neighbor. Everything was relative. Everything was individualized. And the same kind of mess came as we're experiencing today. And in the first century, in the city of Corinth, there was rampant sexual immorality and a a misuse and abuse of God's given gift of human sexuality was taking place just like it's taking place today. In the center of the city of Corinth, there was a place known as the Acropolis, a high hill. On top of that hill was the temple of the goddess Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And the way in which Aphrodite was worshipped was through sexual immorality. Every night, the thousand-plus temple prostitutes who were employed by the temple of Aphrodite would go down from the Acropolis into the belly of the city of Corinth, and they would offer themselves to whoever had enough money in his pocket. This was regular practice, so much so that the, the term Corinth came to be directly associated with immorality. To Corinthianize something in Paul's day meant to make it filthy. So what we're experiencing today in our culture is really nothing new. It's the same old junk in a different package is really all it is. That's not to minimize. That's not in any way to minimize what we're dealing with today. But it's just to say, let's not get the wrong idea. Sin is sin and has always been sin as long as sin has been in the world, which was from the day when Eve chose to disobey the word of God and to cease to believe the authority of God in her life and seek to go her own way and do her own thing. But in the midst of talking about sexual immorality, the Apostle Paul goes where we must go as a church. The Apostle Paul goes directly to where we must go as a church. If we're going to talk about our sexuality, we must talk about it in the context of God's gift of marriage. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We must talk about it in the context of God's gift of marriage. And and the Apostle Paul gives a principle here. 
And I want you to see this because it'll help us to think rightly about this passage because there's a lot of misunderstandings about 1 Corinthians 7 and I don't want us to fall off one side or the other of this truth. I want us to, to walk the straight and narrow here. The guiding principle is this. It's found in verse 17. It's to walk in the way that you were called. Now, and I'm going to explain what that means for a moment. Uh, let's look at the verse first. 1 Corinthians 7, 17 The Apostle Paul, right in the middle of this chapter, lays down this principle. He says, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him. Literally, walk in the way that you are called, to which God has called you. This is my rule in all the churches. This is a broad principle, not just for the church at Corinth, but the churches at all ages, at all times, in all places. This is a general guiding principle for the people of God that we would walk in the way that we were called. So what does that mean? Well, he basically explains it in the next several verses that he gives two illustrations. One of those were, were those in his day who were slaves when they came to know Christ as their Savior. And Paul was not in any way, was not in any way condoning the institution of slavery, but it was a reality in their day that they had to deal with as the people of God. And he says to those who were slaves, he said, when you were called, if you were called as a slave... You don't, th- don't think that you have to gain your freedom before you'll have what you need in Christ. Live as you were called. You can continue in your slavery knowing that your position in Christ is much more imp- important than your position in this culture. That you may still be a slave to your earthly master, but your heavenly master has set you free. And so find your identity in Christ. You can live as you're called. So keep that in the back of your mind this morning as we walk through these scriptures because it's so easy to get confused in 1 Corinthians 7 and again to fall off one side or the other of the issues that we're going to talk about. But we walk this straight and narrow by reminding ourselves that each of us has received a calling from God. If you're in Jesus Christ today, if he is your Savior and you've trusted him by faith, you've repented of your sins and turned and trusted in Christ, then you've received a calling from God. And we're going to talk about some of those today. We're going to talk about them as four gifts, as I believe the Apostle Paul does uh, there in verse 7. Let's read it together. Verse 7, he says, I wish all were as myself am. We'll talk about that in a minute. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Four gifts this morning. The first one is this. We need a church to celebrate the God-given gift of celibacy. We need to celebrate the God-given gift of of celibacy. Now let's just go ahead and say it out loud. That is not a gift in the eyes of our culture. That is something to get out of in the eyes of our culture. We need to be reminded today, as I believe the scriptures would indicate here in verse 1, they wrote to him, and they were, they were dealing with the sexual immorality in their culture, and some in the church in Paul's day, they're in the church at Corinth, they said, okay, because of all the sexual immorality in our culture, then should we as a church institute a rule that we all just abstain from sexual relationships altogether? Should we just enact a, a law, a rule in our churches outlawing sexual expression altogether? And the Apostle Paul says, he doesn't automatically say no. Notice what he says in verse 1. Concerning the matters about which you wrote, he affirms it. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Our culture laughs at that. Really? It just seems utterly ridiculous. We need to be reminded today that abstinence is not an affliction. 
It is one of a couple of approved ways of living in honor of the Lord. Now there are some, as we'll talk about in a minute, there are some who are called to abstinence for a time, and there are some who are called to abstinence for a lifetime. But there's a stigma associated with this in our culture that's so obsessed with our sexuality. We'll talk more about that in a minute as well. There's this stigma associated with it. To be a virgin, it almost seems as though that is something that's associated with being an outcast, being weird, being devoid of what it means to be human. The Apostle Paul says, no, there's something good and God-honoring here. What is that? 1 Timothy chapter 6 The Apostle Paul makes the statement that the godliness with contentment is great gain. Let me show you the scripture. 1 Timothy chapter 6. He says, Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment, for we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of the world. That's a good reminder, isn't it? If you see a hearse that's followed by a U-Haul, he still isn't getting to take that stuff with him. Okay? You brought nothing into this world. You're not going to take anything out of it. But the principle that he's trying to apply here is the same one we've been talking about. Live as you were called. Fulfill the calling that God has placed on your life. And that involves two things. God has called every believer in Jesus Christ to godliness. There are no super Christians walking around with C's on their chests who are the, the elevated ones that are up here. And then we have all the peons of Christianity that are basically just able to live with one foot in the world and one foot in Christ. That's not the picture. You will not find that in this book. All of us have been called to godliness and to holiness. And I know immediately the thoughts that we have, but we all fall short. Yes, we do. But let's stop using our falling short as an excuse to continue in immorality. That's not what it's about. Christ died for our sins. Why would you continue to live in them, the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 6. You've been set free from that. So there's godliness we've been called to, but we've also, this is one thing the church has missed so often. We've been called to godliness. We've also been called to contentment. Notice he didn't say complacency, church. He did not say apathy. He said contentment. And we've oftentimes erred on one or the other of these two words. Godliness with contentment is what Christ desires for us. But sometimes we've gone so much after godliness that there's no real contentment there. We're not content in who we are in Christ. We're not really finding our identity there. There's so much striving that there's no resting in Christ. And then other times we're so seeking for the contentment that there's not really any godliness. We've become content with having one foot in the world and one foot in Christ. And that's not the kind of contentment that he wants for us. But he's saying that godliness with contentment is great gain. And that is true both for the married and the unmarried. When we do the things God's way, we will find a contentment in Christ that will occur nowhere else. And so is there godly contentment possible in lifelong celibacy? What does the Bible say, church? Yes. Then why do we act as though there is not? Even in our churches, we act as though that is not a truth, and it is. Let's move on for the sake of time. Secondly, we need to celebrate the God-given gift of our sexuality. 
So yes, there are some, and Paul is so clear here, there are some who have been called to lifelong abstinence and celibacy, honoring God in a way that others cannot or, or will not, and you, and you see that gift, but you also, he goes right from there to say, but because of the times, because of the sexual immorality that was, again, the city of Corinth, so much like what we're seeing in our culture today, a culture that was obsessed with sexuality. He says, because of this, it's good for a man to have a wife and for a wife to have a husband. But he puts our sexuality in its right and proper place in the plan and purpose of God. What is that? Let me give you this statement. This is not original with me. We need to understand that sex is not gross, nor is it a God. We've erred on one of those two sides in the church so often and especially in our culture, we've erred on the one side in this place of thinking about, well, that's something gross that we don't want to talk about. We, we, in fact, we never talk about it. But here's the reason why we need to, need to talk about this in the context of our church. Because God does. If God had not spoken about sexuality, there would no, be no reason for us to speak about it. But he talks about it all throughout the Scriptures. There is multiple places I could take you this morning where God speaks about this gift. It's not gross, nor is it a God to be worshipped. That's what our culture is doing right now. We have elevated our sexuality to this place where that's the most important thing about you. That's why this whole conversation about sexual orientation has made the front page day after day after day because we're, fee- we're feeding on this lie that that's the most important thing about a person is your sexual orientation. And it's not, folks. I'm not saying it's unimportant. Let's not fall off that side of the wagon either. I'm not saying it's unimportant, but I'm saying that is not the defining word on your life. It's just not. The most important thing that was meant to define you is your relationship with the God who created you. So it's not gross. It's not a God. It is a gift. But every gift, let me say this, every gift has its proper purpose and use. A couple of years ago, I'll give you a little illustration. A couple of years ago, uh, we made the per- parental mistake of allowing one of our children uh, to have the gift of a plastic sword. Now, at that time, we were still learning what it meant uh, to have a family with a boy in it. We had two have two girls, and then our little boy came along and. Regardless of what our culture says, boys and girls are very different. You don't have to be around little boys and girls very long to figure out boys and girls are very different, and that is God-created, God-ordained. That's just the way it is. So what, this, all this gender blending and erasing gender distinctions is garbage because God created us male and female, and those are two very different categories, definitely in my household. So as our little boy gets older and he gets into superheroes and begins to put on the outfits and all that kind of stuff, the plastic sword becomes his ally as a superhero. And we would love to tell you that he did only good and God-honoring things with the plastic sword, 
But it wasn't even a week that he was carrying that thing around that one of the daughters, I don't remember who the first one was, came, tears flowing down her face, and you know what happened. He hit me with that sword. That was episode one, and we're probably on episode 98 by now of that same story. J.D. and the sword, he hit his sister, she's crying. And so what do we do as parents? The good gift, which some of you say that was, a, that was not a good gift, that was not even a smart thing to allow your kid to have because that's what he's going to, that's what boys are going to do. They're going to hit people with plastic swords. That's just what boys do. But that good gift was misused and abused. And so what does the parent do? You take the sword and you put it on top of the curio cabinet and you sit him down and you talk with him face to face about the proper use of that gift, which is to complement your superhero outfit and you can fight your invisible villains, but it's not for whacking your sister across the head. <laughs> now we laugh. We laugh and we should laugh because it's comical, but this is what we do as sinful human beings. We take the good gifts of God and we misuse and abuse them. That's what it means to be a sinner. Sin is not just I do a bunch of bad stuff, but it's I take the good stuff that God has given me and I misuse and abuse it. That's really the core of all sin is that I misuse and abuse the good gifts of God. And our sexuality is one of those gifts that was meant to be a wonderful thing given to the husband and wife as a wedding present to be enjoyed in the context of that marriage relationship. From the very beginning, he made them male and female. He brought the man and the wife together, and they became one flesh, and they used that God-given gift of their sexuality to honor God. And, of course, sin it into the world, and it screwed that up just like it screwed up everything else. But let's not forget, church, at its core... Its creation purpose, our sexuality, is the good gift of God. Not gross, not a God, but a good gift and used rightly can honor God. Look at verses 3 through 5. I want to say something here that's probably going to upset a few people, but the Bible says it, so we're going to say it too. So he says, so how do we do this rightly? He just gets it right down to the point. So the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. And then verse 4 is one that our culture very much hates. For the wife does not have authority over her own body. Man, put that on a billboard. You want to get some phone calls? Put that on a billboard and let's attach your phone number to it and we'll see what happens for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. He says, do not deprive one another. Literally, the Greek there, the Greek literally has the sense of stop depriving one another. Stop depriving one another, except perhaps by agreement for a, what does he say? A limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self control what's the bible doing here the bible is emphasizing our responsibilities over our rights now our culture despises this we are in a rights oriented culture we want to emphasize our freedoms and our rights and so we want to emphasize the rights that a woman has over her own body the rights a man have has over his own body and the apostle paul says guess what when you got married you relinquished those rights 
Some of us didn't grasp that on the day we walked down the aisle with our spouse. We didn't, we didn't grasp the fullness of that statement. But we need to. And we want to go a step back. We go back to chapter 6, what we looked at last week. And we understand when you came to know Christ as your Savior, you relinquished the rights to your body there, whether you were married or not. Your body then belongs to God. He is now the temple. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. He lives in you, and your body is no longer your own. It was bought with the price of Christ's blood shed at the cross. And so your body now exists not for your own pleasure to do with as you see fit, but it exists for the glory of God. And then you enter into a marriage relationship, and your body is not your own. Now it belongs to Christ, and now it belongs to your spouse. We could go real deep here and stay a long time. I'm not going to. But I just want you to see this, church. This is the gift of God. Marriage as he defined it. Notice what he says very clearly. Between one man and one woman, the intent for a lifetime, a covenant relationship that glorifies God, that pictures the relationship between Christ and his church. This is the good gift of God in our sexuality. Matthew Henry talked about this passage and he said, Persons expose themselves to great danger by attempting to perform what is above their strength. At the same time, not bound upon them by any law of God. If they refrain from lawful enjoyments, they may be ensnared into unlawful ones. The remedies God hath provided against sinful inclinations are certainly best. Subtext, married people should be using the God-given gift of their sexuality with one another. That's not just your pastor saying that. That's the Apostle Paul inspired by the Holy Spirit in the Word of God making that statement. Because what was happening in the church at Corinth was they were trying to be super spiritual and say, well, because of all the sexual immorality around us, perhaps we should just all abstain from sex altogether. We should even tell the married people in our midst that if you're going to be a follower of Christ here at Corinth, that's going to mean you're going to have to sign an abstinence pledge. And the Apostle Paul says it's ludicrous. You are despising the good gift of God. And the application should be obvious to us. Live as you were called. Exercise the gifts you were given to the glory of God. Thirdly, third gift. Celebrate the God-given gift of singleness. Man, I wish we... I, I would like to take at some point some time to go deeper into this one, but I just want to say a couple of things about it. He says there in verse 6, he says, Now as a concession not a command. He's speaking, speaking about what he's about to say, not what came before. There were commands in the part before, but he's saying as a concession to what's going on, he says, I say this, I wish all were as I myself am. Paul was a single man. We don't know that he had always been single. He could have been a widower. That's possible. He doesn't even speak about that in his own life, but we know that at this point, he was a single man. He did not have a wife. But notice what he says in verse 7, but each has his own gift from God one of one kind and one of another. What's he talking about? In chapter 12, he'll talk about spiritual gifts. That's not what he's talking about here, though. He's talking about the gift of marriage versus the gift of singleness. And he's trying to keep us in balance here. And the church has been so out of balance here. We have elevated the gift of marriage in many instances to such a place that we have despised the God-given gift of singleness. And in our midst, there are individuals who have been called to honor God in their singleness in two ways. One, 
Sometimes singleness is for a limited time. Let's just remind ourselves, folks, you weren't born married. Folks here in the first couple of rows, maybe one day you will be married, but for right now you're not. So what's God's calling on your life? To be single. This is the amazing thing about God's calling. Here's what we do. I'm trying not to be sarcastic here, but this is what we do. We, we think about God's calling in our life, and we hit our knees, and we plead with God. God, I just, want to know your, I just want to know your calling on my life. I just want to know what you want from me, God. And sometimes it's staring us right in the face. And so guess what? If you're single right now, that is the calling of God on your life for this season, maybe for your lifetime. Now, I know we can wrestle. We can wrestle over, is this, is this, a, is this a, a, a calling for a limited time or for a lifetime? Don't even get caught up in that. Realize that if you are single right now, that's where God has you, so honor God in that place. But what, we, what do we do? We strive to be in another place. So I'm single, then I'll, I just so want to be married, and I live my life toward marriage, and I think I can't possibly be completely by the lie of the, of the, of the 1990s movie Jerry Maguire where he, he looked at her and he said, you complete me. That is false teaching, folks. There is only one who can complete you, and his name is Jesus Christ. You have a God-shaped hole in your heart that will not be filled by a wedding ring. I'm not diminishing marriage here. I am saying to you, live as you are called. So if you're single now, honor God in your singleness. That means if you're not in a marriage relationship... And having sex is off the table in terms of God's will for your life. And you say, that's hard. Yeah. And so Paul gives the remedy. If it's too hard, guess what? Go get married. This is really not hard. I mean, it's really so straightforward. He's saying, I wish all were as I am, that they could control their passions and live a life of God-honoring singleness. By the way, I'm going to go ahead and get to this point. Singleness allows for an undivided devotion to the Lord. That's why it's a gift. There are things that single people can do that married people cannot do. See, we're always thinking about the things that married people can do that single people can't do. But there are things that single people can do that married people cannot do. What kinds of things? He tells you, 1 Corinthians 7, the rest of this passage. He says, so the unmarried man, the single guy, he is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. That's what's on his mind. But the married man is anxious about the worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. The unmarried or betrothed woman, she's anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote what? good order, and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So here's what Paul's not saying. He's not saying, all right, married people, you should all leave your spouses. No, he's already going to cover that here. Live as you were called. But what he is saying is there is something in the life of a single person, there is a way in which they can honor and glorify God that married people cannot do because they have other things that are laying on them, other things that God has given them to be concerned about. Their spouse, it's not right for a man to say, I'm only going to be concerned about the things of God. Who cares what happens to my wife and my kids? That's called neglect, and even the Bible condemns it. And so there's a way in which those who are single can honor the Lord that those 
who are married cannot. That is a gift of God, and it should be honored. But I want to tell you, this is what's happened in so many of our churches. To be single in the church today in America is so oftentimes to be an outsider. It's just the reality, and I just want to speak into it just for a moment, because many of us, we owe an apology. We owe an apology to the single people in our midst for treating them as though they're somehow second-class citizens. You go to the average church in America today, specifically our Baptist churches, and the singles group has this stigma associated with it. That's where the misfits are. That's for the ones that are just waiting to get married. That's for the, that's, it's like a second-class citizens group. And the Apostle Paul says, no, no church. I want you to understand this about the call to singleness, church. The call to singleness is not a call to loneliness. The call to singleness is not a call away from relationships. God created every person for community, for relationships, primarily with Him, but also with one another. And so where the church ought to be a place where the single person can find those relationships, can dwell in community with one another. The church ought to be the place that's better than the singles bar that they're having to go to to find a spouse. The church ought to be the place where singles can be celebrated for who they are, not for who they might be one day when they find a spouse. Instead, we treat folks as if, well, what's wrong with them? They don't have a significant other. And it's wrong, church. I believe it's a place of repentance for us. And more and more in the days ahead as we wrestle with the issues around us. Finally, this morning, we need to celebrate the God-given gift of a spouse. I want to leave you with two questions today, and I hope that these will some way summarize some of the things we've been talking about over the past couple of weeks. First question is this. Is it possible to decide on a new definition of marriage? Because that's what's being talked about all over our culture today. The redefining of marriage. Look at the dictionary definition. Dictionary.com looked it up this week. Here's the definition of marriage according to dictionary.com. Marriage is any of the diverse forms of interpersonal union established in various parts of the world to form a familial bond that is recognized legally, religiously, or socially, granting the participants mutual conjugal rights and responsibilities, and it goes on to say, including opposite-sex marriage, same-sex marriage, multiple marriage, and a few other things that it mentions that I won't. Now, if that doesn't send your head spinning, that's just confusion. It's confusion even the definition. What does that even mean? I don't know what it means. Somebody needs to come and enlighten me. I'm not very enlightened. Perhaps we need to go back to some old definitions. Baptist Faith and Message 2000, our statement of faith here in this church, simply says marriage is the uniting of one man and one woman in covenant commitment for a lifetime. That's a whole lot simpler. Let me just give you some insight into the ways of God. He's not overly complicated. It's our sinful natures that complicate things. And that's what our culture's doing right now. You, think, you see, we think that we are helping folks by broadening this definition. 
Maybe the one thing, maybe the one thing that our culture has gotten right is that marriage is a good thing. Though the undercurrent that we're seeing right now, folks, I need you to understand this. This is important for us to understand in the day in which we're living. The goal of the activists in our culture right now is not really to gain marriage. It's to destroy it. They don't really want marriage for themselves. They don't want anybody to have it. They don't want the exclusivity of relationships. They want people to be able to do whatever they want, whenever they want, however they want, with whoever they want. That's the very nature of sin. It's exactly what we want in our sinful hearts. That's what I want in my sinful heart. I want to be able to do whatever I want with ever, whoever I want, whenever I want. You can't tell me anything. I want to be the definer of truth. I want to be the one who's in the driver's seat on all things at all times, in all places, and you can't tell me differently. If that doesn't sound like our culture, I don't know what does. An even older definition, we go back to what was used to train children in the faith in the 1600s called the Westminster Catechism. It simply says marriage is between one man and one woman. They would, in, the, in the catechisms, they would ask a child a question. The first question of the Westminster Catechism says, what is the chief end of man? What's our purpose here on earth? And the answer the child would respond with is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Awesome truth. Simple question, simple answer. They would come down to what is marriage? Marriage is to be between one man and one woman. And we think that we're helping people by broadening the definition to include whoever wants to be included. And by the way, it will not stop with homosexual relationships, church. If we think that's true, we are blind as the day is long. It will not stop there. It is a slippery slope, and more and more that definition will be broadened until it means nothing. Until it means nothing. But from the very beginning of creation, God made them male and female, one man and one woman. He brought them together, and the two became one flesh in the first covenant marriage, and it was very good. God's words. And so it's time for us, church, to re-embrace this good gift of God. There's so much talk about defending marriage today. We just need to get out there and defend marriage with our picket signs and our petitions and our political movements. We just need to defend marriage. I want to ask you, church, I don't mean to, def- to offend any more than necessary, but here's my final question. How can we defend marriage without delighting in it. The reality is we won't. You will not rightly defend that which you do not delight in. And for far too long, the church has been standing on the street corner with picket signs and allowing the same mess that the world is in to exist within their homes. And the world looks at us as we're standing up for marriage between a man and his wife for life and sees that we're running toward sexual immorality and divorce and any number of other things. I don't have time to get into all those issues today. Perhaps we will at one point, but here's the word. 
We need to be delighting in the God-given gift of marriage. And so what does that mean for you today? It means, it means Hebrews 13. Let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. There is judgment coming for sexual immorality. If there is no repentance, there is no forgiveness of sins. Faith requires repentance just as repentance requires faith. In this day and age of confusion, as we're talking about defending marriage, perhaps the best way, the best way for us to defend marriage in our day and age is to delight in it. What does that mean? That means for some who are single, the best way you can delight in marriage if you're not ready to be married yet is to live in Christ-honoring singleness. Honor, if, if one day God calls you to marriage, honor your future marriage by remaining sexually pure until the day when you put the ring on your finger and then can engage in God's good gift. And church, I'm just going to go ahead and say it. Most of the statistics out there say that it's our sons and daughters who are not doing that. We are signing abstinence pledge cards and then we're going out and sleeping with our boyfriends and our girlfriends. And we despise God's good gift in the process and we miss out on the joys that come from doing things God's way. For others, it means you may be single right now, but God has put in your heart a desire for marriage, perhaps even a potential marriage partner, and you need to run into that relationship. We talked about flee sexual immorality last week. Flee sexual immorality. Here's one of the best ways to flee sexual immorality. Get married. Does that mean there'll be no more sexual temptations? No, that does not mean, that's not what that means. But it does mean that you'll have the opportunity to engage in that God-given gift of sexuality in the in situation for which God defined it. And gave it to you for. We've bought into this lie, especially in our churches, that long engagements are a good idea. I know I'm stepping into dangerous territory right now, and I'm going to go ahead and step there. Something happens, young men, when you put a ring on her finger. Desires are enacted, and it's not a wise and good thing to put that off for years. And we buy all the lies. I've got to finish college. I've got to get to a financially stable place. What is more important in your life than purity before God? Nothing. And I stand before you as your pastor and tell you that I bought the same lies. Same exact lies in my own life. Beth and I had been dating one month when I knew that she was the person that God would have me to marry and spend the rest of my life with. And I waited three and a half years to walk down the aisle with her. And I will stand before you today and tell you that was sin against Almighty God and against my future spouse. I should have popped the question on day 31 and walked down the aisle with her two months later. And we would have been poor, but we would have been pure. And people might have said, well, you won't be happy that way, but we sure would have been holy. And I'm just saying to you, I know it's not a popular statement to make today. 
There's a place in our church cultures today where we need to urge our sons and daughters when the time is right. And in the Lord, by the way. That's what Paul says about marriage every time. If you are a believer, it is a requirement for you to marry in the Lord. That means you marry someone that shares your same faith that will help you to grow in your faith. But we've bought all the lies of this culture saying just put off marriage later and later and later. And what we're doing is we are inviting, we are inviting sexual immorality to come and dwell at our doorstep. And God's way is so much better. So you say, well, what in the world do I do with all that? I'll be straight up. Some in this room are single and you need to consecrate your life and your body to the Lord and not put yourself in situations where that will be hindered. Some, it'll mean abstaining from dating altogether until God brings you to the person that he wants you to spend the rest of your life with. I know that's not culturally uh, smiled upon. I don't care. I think dating is another one of those lies that the devil uses. By the way, even if you are going to date, I I would give you this indication. Don't date anybody that God would not have you to marry. That's just rule number one. Secondly, some of you in this room, you need to run toward marriage. When Paul says it's better to marry than to burn, take him seriously. Sexual immorality will burn your house to the ground. This is not to be messed with. And there are some, as Paul talks about, that can control that, that can have self-control in that area. And there are many of us who need to raise our hands and say, yeah, that's not me. Praise God that some can, but that's not me. So the answer to that is run to God's gift of marriage and find the peace of God and the purity there. And for those who are married, here's the word. Delight in what God has given to you. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. That self-sacrificing love and gave himself up for her. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands in the Lord. And thus picture the gospel. Christ who gave his life for the church and the church who walks in obedient submission to her Savior. before we would defend what our culture is attacking, let's first delight in God's good gift. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we've covered a lot of ground today, and with fear and trembling, we come to this this moment where now We have to actually do something with what your word has said to us. And there is nothing easy about the statements that you've given us here in 1 Corinthians 7, but they are so good. God, I want to give you thanks for those in our midst that you have called to singleness. Many of them right here in this front row, and and many of them one day will be married, but for now you have called them to singleness, and I pray for those in this calling that you would enable them to honor you with their bodies.
not to believe the lies of this culture. Father, I pray for those in this place who are moving toward marriage in these days. God, I pray it would be a quick flight. I pray that the lies of our culture and of the devil would be set aside and that we would not put off and prolong the place of sexual temptation just to get to a better place in the eyes of this culture. Just to get that job or that degree or just so our parents will be happy. Lord, I pray that we would love your gift more than we would value the perception of others in our lives. And for those who are married, I pray that it may be evident in us that we delight in your good gift. That our world would look to husbands and wives in this place and see husbands who are sacrificing for their wives, who are putting the desires of their wives before their own. That they would see wives who are following the godly leadership of their husbands. That they would see the effects of husbands and wives who are enjoying all of your good gifts as you designed them to be enjoyed. Our sexuality and everything that goes with it, God, I pray that they would see us light in a dark place of this culture that is so confused. And that they would desire what we have because what we have that is most important is you. That they would see the light of Christ burning in our homes. And that they would desire beyond an answer to their questions, beyond a political scheme, God, that they would come to desire nothing more than Christ and Him crucified. Dead and buried, then raised to life to give to each one who would trust in Him what we could never have on our own. Something greater than any marriage, than any calling, than any ministry, than any position is to be found in Christ him alone trusting him to work out in us the calling he has placed upon our lives may you honor yourself in our bodies Lord in our marriages in our singleness until you take us home to be with you we pray in Jesus name invite you during this time to respond to the message this morning. It may mean hitting your knees or your face before God and just asking Him to lead you in decisions that He has placed upon your heart this morning. It may mean that you need to come to know Christ as your Savior. You cannot walk in obedience to the things of God until you know God and you only know Him through Jesus. Kent and I will be here at the front. If we can help you with how to know Jesus as your Savior, we invite you to that today. Let's not just be hearers of the word, let's become doers of it. As we share this song together, you respond.